Everybody, this is Peter Diamandis. I'm here with my dear friend, my partner, my coach, Dan Sullivan. Welcome to Exponential Wisdom. So Dan, on this episode, we're going to cover a topic near and dear to my heart, which is what's going on in the space world, which is moving at its own version of warp speed with the launch this past week of the first SpaceX space station routine mission, some of NASA's plans to go to the asteroid belt, what's going on with Jeff Bezos and his rocket company, Blue Origin. There's a lot going on. On top of that, we have Starlink launching 1,000 satellites on their way to 12,000 satellites. Space is picking up. It's picking up fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and commercially, I mean, for most of history, it's just been the exploration, you know, the can we even do it? Can we get outside of the gravitational system and go to the moon and other things? And a lot of really, really great, what I would call drone activity of sending unmanned voyagers to, you know, actually land on Mars and walk around Mars and then to take phenomenal photography in the rest of the solar system. But this seems to me a change. This almost seems like a change of context this week. I don't know. I'm just picking it up for the last month or so. I think we've honestly entered into a new commercial age with space as the vehicle, space as the opportunity. Would I be incorrect that is being perceived now from the context that this is going to be commercial? And I hadn't seen that quite before this. So I think it's been a push for the last 30 years. I think we have some aha moments occurring right now. And just to give everybody sort of an overview of where things are, the traditional aerospace industry, Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, their collaboration, I had Launch Alliance in Europe. We've got a few companies, Airbus and Ariana Spas and such. But what's been going on is there's been an emergence of these commercial startups, which are building rockets and satellites and systems on their own, funded on their own. Now, in the U.S., the two biggest are SpaceX and Blue Origin. Blue Origin is funded by Jeff Bezos. I've known Jeff since college, and he's super passionate about space. That's been his purpose. I remember meeting him. I said, Jeff, what are you doing with this Amazon thing? He goes, I'm going to make my money there and I'll spend it on space. Mm -hmm. A simple two-step plan. And he's committed, you know, a billion a year minimum of his own capital to fund Blue Origin. And they have a series of private rockets they're building. They've only done suborbital hops so far, but their larger vehicles and their larger engines are under development. And they'll start going to space quickly. And then, of course, SpaceX. And Elon started his journey here in circa 2001, 2002, when he really had just sold PayPal to eBay and had extra 140 million bucks in his pocket and was excited about space, wanted to go and long story for how he got there. But eventually, having gone to Russia and seeing that the rockets hadn't changed in 40 years, they were old, you know, basically ICBMs repurposed. The tech hadn't modified. It was expensive. They were throwaway. And he said, I'm going to do this myself. Now, kudos to him. No formal background in aerospace engineering. He basically started with textbooks, and he's brilliant, and he's built the dominant rocket company on the planet, not by a little bit, by a massive margin, right? His first vehicle, Falcon 1, three failures. The fourth was succeeded. Then he won a contract from NASA, got Falcon 9 going, stopped the Falcon 1, got Falcon 9, Falcon Heavy. 
And now he's building something called Starship, which is a much larger vehicle. We're talking larger than the Apollo program that can take, you know, 100 people to Mars. I mean, that's his vision of that kind of a mission. Ultimately, he's now launching satellites. He's a project called Starlink, which is launching up to now on the order of 1,000 satellites, soon to be 12,000 satellites, giving broadband around the world. And then there's a dozen small launchers. Mm -hmm. These are companies, you know, 50 people, 100 people building rockets, launching rockets from Astra to Rocket Labs to Firefly to Virgin Orbit. And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me is that what I would say the breakthrough moment where I really got it, and it was about a 10-minute overview that you gave on a previous podcast, and that was the cost of rocket launches is in the launch vehicle, which was thrown away. And now you have a launch vehicle, which comes back and can be used over and over again, actually comes back to where it took off from. You know, you need some retrofitting over a short period of time, but it's ready to use again. That seems to me almost like a, a reverse exponential moment in the sense that you've taken the cost of something down by a factor of 10, uh, order of 10 cheaper. And that has to be a breakthrough moment because, you know, the first 40 to 50 miles are the real challenge. The cost is in the first 40 or 50 miles of the trip just because of gravity. It's interesting, right? The old rocketry equivalent would have been you're flying from New York to London on a 747, and when you land, you dispose of the airplane <laughs> instead of making it reusable. And the costs would be concomitant, would be, you know, $10 million a, a ticket or a million dollars a ticket. It'd be ridiculous. We've always in the space industry, and now you have to understand, I've been in the space industry for 40 plus years since, you know, high school effectively, or a space fan at least. It was always the hope of full reusability. Because as long as you're throwing away the vehicle, it's insane. And we've talked about the economics here before that, you know, the cost of a space shuttle was extraordinarily expensive. A Soyuz flight's $110 million, $120 million a flight. The cost of the fuel is a quarter million dollars. You know, we're talking about less than a percentage point, but it's the labor that costs so much to assemble the vehicles. If you can make it reusable, it changes the game. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're heading. And it's really about creating business in space, economics in space. Last year at Abundance 360, I had an amazing company called Relativity that are 3D printing their entire rockets. Yeah. They're dematerializing and demonetizing factories where you can 3D print a rocket, yeah. an airplane wing, a jet engine. That's amazing. Yeah, and both of the partners that you had up on stage, they learned how to do this shortly after they learned how to shave. Yeah, they were <laughs> they were 23 years old. It was amazing. <laughs> you know, last yeah. year's program was, you know, it brought in the co-founder of Airbnb and the co-founder of YouTube and talking about their early experiences and the guys who started Relativity and about their experiences. And their companies going from zero to multi-billion dollar valuations yeah. in record time. There's a really great website that's called Visual Capitalist, and it's just very, very complex economic information converted down to graphs. And one of them I was looking at was the satellite, and basically about in the world, if you take the big players in the world, uh, the Russians put satellites up, the Chinese put satellites, but the U.S. is like 
65% of all the satellites are U.S. origin yeah. and finance. But the biggest player is Elon Musk, the yeah. biggest player of in the satellite. I mean, and by a long shot, not a short shot, a long shot. And a lot of people have never heard about that, about Elon Musk. I said, this has got to be a really important economic advantage to have that many satellites up. Well, and to have the ability to put up that many satellites, that's uh, that's Yeah, no question. It's a business plan that's been tried before, but Elon's pulling it off. And Starlink is going to give us, you know, broadband, multi-hundred megabit connectivity in the Sahara Desert, the top of Mount Everest, in your airplane when you're flying. It's basically going to connect, you know, billions of people who've never been connected before. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a massive accelerant to the global economy and education and healthcare and a multitude of different elements connect people and good things happen. So, you know, ultimately, you have to remember that the majority of the space industry, let's start it in the mid 50s through 2000s, was all industrial military complex. Mm -hmm. It was we're repurposing ICBMs. We are launching satellites to communicate. We're launching satellites to spy on our enemies. And when it was a national defense driver, people don't care about space. The general public didn't care about space and people didn't care about what it cost. Yeah. So it was very expensive. It's just now in the full commercialization, like when I was running the original Ansari XPRIZE for spaceflight, which kicked a lot of this off, it was, for me, the cost per flight per person until we got that price down wasn't going to ignite what I call the, you know, economic exothermic reaction of space. You know, how do we make money in space? So that's important. Yeah. Can I go back and have you do a little history because you saw this coming and it's a very fundamental principle, but if you don't launch into space the principle of individual private ownership of things found in space, you're not going to have any economic revolution there. Yeah, happily. So if you think about it, everything we hold of value on Earth, metals, minerals, energy, real estate, are in near infinite quantities in space. And if you think about what opened up America, it was private ownership. It was coming to America and getting land and planting tobacco or getting the rights to the railways. Wheat or corn or, you know. Getting yep. the railway rights and a claim for gold in California. And all of this economic and this drive to get ownership and create increasing value opened up the American dream. Mm -hmm. And it's no different in space. Mm -hmm. It was about, oh, let's see, eight, nine years ago that I ventured with a friend, Eric Anderson and Chris Lewicki, on this idea that the greatest economic value physically is in asteroids. One could look at the moon, and many are for mining resources from the moon. The difficulty is who owns the moon. The moon is a religious object for a number of tribes and religions. And so there's a little pushback on that, but there are tens of millions of rocks <laughs> floating throughout space, many of them between Mars and Jupiter. It's called the asteroid belt. It's where a planetoid really failed to form because of Jupiter's large gravitational pull. And these rocks come in two flavors. One flavor is metallic chondrites. And these are basically large metal 
rocks that are rich in nickel and iron, and what are called siderophilic metals, which are metals that like iron, like palladium, platinum, iridium, osmium, the platinum group metals. Precious metals. Precious metals, very precious. They're rare on Earth because most of them sunk to the center of the planet, and so they're hard to get in the crust. In the crust, we have lighter metals like aluminum that weren't dense and didn't sink gravitationally to the center of the Earth. And so some of these asteroids, and you were just mentioning earlier one of the reports that NASA put out that it's going to one of these asteroids in the belt that are worth like tens of trillions of dollars. Quadrillion. <laughs> quadrillion of dollars. Yeah, quadrillion. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I don't want to overhype it. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mean, there's a point when you're adding zeros where it becomes meaningless. But so these things are easier and faster to talk about than they are to achieve. But we're on the route to that because it has to be paid for. And if there's an independent funding source, that's where you're going to explore, then that makes a big difference. So the other kind of asteroid of interest is carbonaceous chondrites, which are dirty ice balls. And people say, what's that of use? Well, ice in space can be basically turned into hydrogen and oxygen, which is rocket fuel. So some of these asteroids, and that's the earlier, easier commercialization of these, is setting up the fuel depots in space. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this earlier. You're right. As a company, our company, Planetary Resources, which isn't around anymore, but I have a few companies going public, and my goal is once they hit to take that capital and reinvest it in going after this. I think it's one of the biggest markets in the in the future. In the solar system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the thing is that it's going to be very, very complex because this will become a national competition very, very quickly. So the U.S. has its Space Force now, which will eventually be the equivalent of the Marine Corps. You know, it's the Space Force, and they already have over 2,000 active members of the Space Force. Any insight or contacts in that have kind of talked to you about how they're going to be effective as quickly as possible in outer space. Well, before I hit the Space Force, let me hit one point you made earlier, which was who owns these asteroids. Mm -hmm. We had done some important work both in the U.S. to create the laws and regulations allowing for private ownership of the materials you extract from the asteroids. Eventually, we want to be able to own the specific asteroid and we got the laws passed in the United States, and we also got the laws passed in Luxembourg, and we're on track towards a few other countries as well. Yep. There's a great book that I love called The Man Who Sold the Moon. It's one of my favorites. I'm very proud to have been the first Heinlein laureate, and Heinlein was one of the most prolific science fiction authors. And he wrote the story about a man, D.D. Harriman, who basically pre-sells all of these resources from the moon and lunar rights and lunar advertising. And by pre-selling it, he raises the money to actually go and do the mission to fulfill on it, <laughs> sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's sort of like throwing yourself your own touchdown pass. And it's an amazing science fiction book from the late 50s, <laughs> which I commend to folks. So ultimately, I think there's massive, massive value. <laughs> it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. And I've joked and said the first trillionaires will be made in space. And I don't think it's a joke. So Space Force is interesting. One of the questions, and I'm very much the I don't want to militarize space kind of guy, but as we're moving off of the planet irreversibly, if you think about 
a thousand years from now. The question is in space, on the moon, on Mars, in these colonies, what languages will be spoken, what forms of government will be practiced. Mm -hmm. You're a much better student of history, but I think I remember that like in the 1300s or 1400s, there were some great explorers from China that had set out and they were on the trajectory to head and colonize the new world, but they turned back. Yes. Do you remember that story at all? There's a novel, uh, not a novel, but it was a book and it was uh, half a century before Columbus. And these ships were monstrous. I mean, if you take a look at the Spanish, Portuguese, English ships, you could put about 20 of them on this Chinese ship. Wow. They traveled in style. And the problem was that China's never been a real stable, organized entity. As a matter of fact, the time since the 40s, when the present regime's been in power, represents about 20% of the total stable history of China. And the reason is it's a hard country to govern. It's got about five different regions. They're different ethnically. They're different language-wise. But they were masters of their own domain, so they decided to explore. And there's a contention now that they didn't find anything and they thought it was a waste of money, or they found something and it was a threat to China. And so the emperor at one point just declared that no more boats could be built and all the existing boats would be destroyed. So they stopped. And the opposite would be the the European nations. And I think part of the reason is that they had competition and they were trying to beat somebody else. Chinese weren't trying to beat anyone. They didn't think there was anyone else in the world <laughs> that was worthwhile. So the real breakthrough was what's called deep water navigation. Okay, because before that, you had to cling to the coast. If you were going on a long trip, you went around Africa, you know, but you had to stay within easy distance of the coast. And they came up with two great inventions. One was the sextant and the sextant allowed them to figure out latitude. They could be really exact about latitude. And, you know, they explored enough. And one of the big things was to find the fast winds off Africa that took you to South America. Then there were northern winds that took you from basically Florida or Georgia across to Europe. But the real breakthrough was the chronometer. That was done by a prize by the Royal Society. It was an X-Prize yes. <laughs> X project. And the chronometer let them figure out longitude. So that between latitude and longitude, they could figure out. And then they were creating maps. The Portuguese were the great navigators. They had like a... They had almost like a Manhattan project or an Apollo project in a place called Lagos in Portugal that was sealed off. And they brought in mathematicians and map makers from all over Europe, and it was top secret. They would go out and they would create maps and everything like that. But deep water navigation fundamentally made the modern world. My point on the Chinese example was, had the Chinese not stopped yeah. and had they continued, and found the new world as we have spoken about it, they would have probably dominated South and Central and North America. And we would all be speaking Mandarin right now instead of English or Portuguese or Spanish. And so the question ultimately is, as we're heading out into space to bring it full round robin, what languages will we be speak? 
what political systems will we have? And, you know, one of the conversations I've had many times is, you know, it's really hard to start a new political system today, yep. starting new government. It's like you either have to go create the landmass and be recognized mm-hmm. and have the ability to defend that landmass, or you're going to have to go and have enough guns to go and take over some landmass. But it's kind of hard to experiment with government. We're going to see new government experimentation occurring in the virtual world. But in space, when we start these colonies mm-hmm. on Mars, colonies in these free-floating O'Neill colonies, we're also going to have the chance for the first time ever to reinvent how we govern. Mm-hmm. And the question is, which of our principles will we take there? So the Space Force has that kind of an element versus the other part, which is defending our assets in space. And it gets really dangerous really fast. Anti-satellite weapons make a mess of low Earth orbit from orbital debris moving at 17,000 miles an hour. Well, explode one big satellite and you can wipe out virtually every sat that the debris goes in. I mean, I've read enough international intrigue and espionage (laughs) books myself to know that you can actually do that with a jet fighter right now that you put a jet fighter up to about 80, 90,000 feet and you send a homing missile. Uh, Yes, anti-satellite weapons, they exist. And they've been tested and they've created a mess. And the other option is you use an electromagnetic pulse to wipe out a whole slew of satellites. All of this stuff is bad. It basically is something we need to deal with. My sense is that there are national systems that are better able to do the space work than other national systems. So my sense is that certain countries are going to be far more important. The U.S. is going to be extraordinary. And the reason is that the U.S. is the best capital source on Earth to get things up, you know, that China, without their export market, is a bankrupt country. I mean, without their exports, there's nothing in China that actually pays for itself. The U.S. is sort of a magnet. I mean, one of the big problems in the U.S. right now is there's more money than there is to invest in. My sense is the U.S. is going to be a magnet for talent. It's going to be a magnet for capital and It's not going to be a United Nations in space. I mean, this is a discussion point, but I don't think there's going to be a United Nations in space. Well, I'll tell you the one use of the Space Force that I think is important. And, you know, I've been talking about what are the existential threats that threaten life on the planet. Pandemics was one of them. The other big existential threat is an asteroid impact. And an asteroid impact on planet Earth of something not too large could make, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic look like a, you know, sunny day. I think we had a 300-mile pass-by last yeah, week. We, we have a lot of these pass-bys. And yeah, people don't and this was like as big as a garage or something like that. And by the way, it doesn't have to be as big as what hit the planet 66 million years ago that wiped out the dinosaurs. You know, the right size asteroid sort of landing near Manhattan or Paris or Moscow would create such a economic disaster on the planet. So we do need the ability to monitor. There's a great joke that says asteroid impacts are God's way of saying, how's your space program doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, my sense is that humans don't get less complicated and complex when they leave the planet. I think human nature is human nature. My sense is that the one area where I think that we've absolutely advanced as human beings 
is that we cooperate more than we compete. We cooperate more than we fight. My sense is that we're learning that if they're different, maybe they're unique, and maybe you can collaborate with other people's uniqueness instead of fighting against their difference. And I see a lot of that. And I think it's going to be technologically enabled, and I think we've taken a big jump during 2020. I think one of the reasons why people collaborate more than fight is if you're seeing an ever-increasing future of opportunity. Mm-hmm right? You fight when you have a scarcity mindset. Yep. When you say, oh, there's one pie, we're going to slice into thinner and thinner slices. If your response is, no, 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 we're going to just bake more pies and everybody gets as many pies as you want. When you realize that next year and the year after that is more and more capabilities, more capital, there's more technology, there's more opportunity, then you're not competing. You're in an expanding universe of opportunity. And so, you know, that's, I think, one of the things that you and I both share, yeah. what I teach at Abundance 360, what you teach at Coach, and it's a mindset which is liberating and allows you to be in a state of gratitude yeah. and out of the gap. Yeah. When you demonstrate this mindset, it grows the mindset in other people, you know. Yes. Or it doesn't, and then you know it. I mean, it's kind of binary, actually. They either are or they're not, but you're not confused about it for a long time. Oh. Well, pal, always fun to talk about space. We're going to see, you know, the 1960s from, well, from Gagarin on April 12, 1961, through December of 1972, when Apollo 17, the last moon mission, took off. Those 11 years were extraordinary years. But I think the next 11, 12 years are going to way outstrip that as we see Starship launching to orbit, heading towards the moon first, heading towards Mars. We see Jeff Bezos. We see Starlink. We see a dozen small launch companies. And we start to see Virgin Galactic, a derivative of the Ansari X Prize, start launching people privately on suborbital flights. You know, the science fiction future has finally caught up with us. So it's going to be a blast. Yeah. I just want to say something here that yeah. 10 years before you were born, I was following the exploits of the Douglas Skyrocket and the Bell X-1 yes. when all the early astronauts were getting their first, you know, more than the speed of sound. Mock speed experience. Experience, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that started. And these were fighter pilots. I mean, all the early astronauts, most of them had combat experience. Anyway, but it started. I was very fascinated. I had the models of all the early space things. But as you say, up until I think really Elon and Jeff Bezos with his Blue Horizon thing, the rockets were still the descendants of the V2s that the Germans, yep. you know. Fuel it up, launch it, throw it fuel away. Fuel it up and it's going to land somewhere and let's hope it does <laughs> <some> damage. <laughs> so my sense is it was not that they're better rockets, they're completely different concepts. They are different generations. And all of this has made possible because of increasing collaboration and because of exponential technologies, right? New material sciences, 3D printed rocket engines, AI driving, simulations and navigation and sensors allowing you to know what's going on at all the times and computer-driven systems. Mm -hmm. And we're just at the beginning of this. So it's just going to increase and get much more fascinating, bringing the price down, making it more available and ultimately making it safer. So... You know, I say this every year, 
this is the most exciting year ever to be alive. Yeah. The only year more exciting is next year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Dan, to wrap up, anybody who is interested in joining me at Abundance 360 to learn about exponential technologies and longevity mindset, abundance and exponential mindset, a moonshot mindset, just go to www.a360.com, a360.com, and would love to support, mentor you on your exponential journey. Yes, and on my side, I've always been fascinated with exponential teamwork. So what we focus on in Strategic Coach, based on a fundamental principle called who, not how, that entrepreneurs learn how to identify their unique ability and actually constantly expand their teamwork with other people with unique ability. The two worlds actually revolve around each other because unique teamwork after a while becomes unique technology and unique technology actually engenders new kinds of exponential teamwork and strategiccoach.com just very, very easy. And you'll find all, all about us. And Peter, it's been a beautiful relationship. I love our partnership. Thank you for being in my life, Dan. Bye. Take care.